May I encourage you to turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews this morning and follow along with us as we read and comment on this text. Hebrews 12. I'm sure you're familiar with Aesop's story of the tortoise and the hare. The hare had all the natural advantages of quickness and speed and agility. The tortoise's only advantage was that uh, he had endurance. And you know the story, endurance was the telling factor. The, uh, the hare became distracted and he lost the race. I'm sure Aesop had more in mind than merely storytelling. This was a story about life. He's pointing out that uh, in life, as in the race between the tortoise and the hare, endurance is the telling factor. For those of you that are betting men and women, the smart money always goes on the turtle. Some of us have quick starts. We look good. We shimmer and shine and, and uh, look very good in the beginning. But the real test of authentic Christianity is the extent to which we endure. We hang in there to the very end. And the story of the tortoise and the hare could very well be told of our spiritual pilgrimage because uh, endurance there, again, is the telling factor. This is the issue that he's been concerned about in chapters 10 and 11 and 12. As you know, he finishes the argument of the book of Hebrews. He establishes the superiority of Jesus in the middle of chapter 10. And then he encourages us to endure, to continue to follow the Lord, no matter what it costs through life's ups and downs and wheels and woes. Endurance we've defined before as something more than tooth-clenched uh, stick to -itiveness. It's simply a matter of doing the will of God despite obstacles, despite hindrances, despite counterindications, despite emotions that are not particularly encouraging. It's just simply a matter of doing what God has called us to do day after day after day. That's what endurance is. The last part of chapter 10, he encourages us like the faithful men and women of the Old Testament to continue on. It's through faith and patience, he says, through faith and endurance that we receive the promises. Then in chapter 11, we have this wonderful catalog of men and women who walked with God through life's ups and downs and they believed in the world of unseen realities. They saw ahead to the hope that was promised and they continued to endure despite the hard things that, that happened to them. Then in chapter 12, he picks up again this matter of endurance. And it's not easy to tell from our English text how the argument runs, but uh, may I suggest that the main idea in this first paragraph is captured in his statement in verse 1. Let us run with perseverance or endurance, the race marked out for us. And everything else in this first uh, section of chapter 12 revolves around that big idea. Let's run with endurance, the race that's set before us. The verb in verse 1 is actually a participle, being surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses throwing off everything that hinders. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, the, the importance of understanding the argument of the passage is, is simply to know what the author is saying. The important thing 
is enduring. Everything else in the chapter is an incentive to endurance. It tells us how we go about sticking with the task of doing the will of God no matter what is happening to us, no matter what circumstances we may have to endure. Now, the first incentive is that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, you might gain the impression from that statement that uh, we are like the Boise State University football team playing in Bronco Stadium, and uh, there are thousands of spectators in the stands uh, watching, cheering, egging us on, encouraging us. But that really is not what the author is talking about. The witnesses to which he refers are the witnesses to faith. Those that are described for us in chapter 11. Uh, Enoch and uh, Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Moses' parents and David and Samson and Jephthah and Barak and all of these uh, heroic men and women that are described for us here, who, despite the vicissitudes of life, continued to endure. And some of them had a very hard time. Life didn't always go the way they wanted it to go. A lot of difficulty, a lot of heartache, a lot of heartbreak. But they continued to do what God had called them to do. Brian, I'm sure, pointed out to you from verse 33 that some through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouth of lions, and so forth. These were those who saw a measure of victory and triumph in this life, but at the same time, others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some were jeered and flogged and chained and imprisoned and stoned and some were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheep, sheepskins and, and goatskins. In other words, they failed miserably in this life. Do you understand that? There will be some failure. Your marriages may fail. Your children may fail. Your health may fail. God never promises that uh, everything is going to be, as my father used to say, hunky-dory. In, in this life. I have an acquaintance back in Dallas, uh, Texas. His name is Fred Smith. I knew him when nobody knew him. He's become quite well-known now in Christian circles. But uh, he was telling a story not too long ago about a, a Christian businessman that he knew who was very, very successful and made an enormous amount of money. And he was visiting in, him in his office. And when he walked into the office, what impressed him was the plush carpets and the limited edition uh, prints on the walls and the $2,000 leather sofas and whatnot. And and over his desk, uh, the back of his desk, was a banner that read, With God, all things are possible. And uh, this man was obviously quite impressed with his success. And he said to Fred, "What, what What do you think? And Fred said, Well, I like the sentiment, but there are two words missing. And the man said, what do you mean there are two words missing? And he he said, with God, all things are possible, even failure. There's a theology around that uh, is described as success theology. We hear less of it now since the demise of the Bakers and and, uh, Jimmy Swaggart and others. But it's this notion that if you follow Jesus, he'll put you in clover. 
that everything's going to turn out your way. You're, you're going to be wealthy and you're going to be healthy and you're going to have everything your little old heart desires. The problem with that success theology is simply that it isn't so. God doesn't promise that everything is going to go this uh, our way. This this world is our is not our home. This may be our father's world, but for the present time, it's in the grip of the evil one. And things may very well be be very very tough for you. Some of you know, I know, came in this morning with, with and you were very sad. Some really hard things have happened to you this this past week. And uh, you're wondering if uh, God is aware and if God cares and if God knows and am I doing something wrong? I simply want to assure you that you're not necessarily doing anything wrong. I mean, you may be, only God and, and you may know, but, but the real, you know, the, the, we, we Christians have to be ultimate realists and, and life can be very, very difficult. Sometimes it can be very, very good, but sometimes it can be very, very hard. And the real test of our faith is the capacity to continue to walk with God, submit to His authority, seek to do His will in the face of all of the, the difficulties and the vicissitudes of life. Now, it's good every once in a while to look back to the lives of these Old Testament characters and, and even to some of our contemporaries. I was thinking as, uh, as the witness referred to Dr. Mitchell, what a wonderful incentive to faith he is. One who endured for 90, what, two, 93 years? 96 years. He's one of my patron saints as, as well. Humanly speaking, he's the reason I'm here in Boise today. And uh, looking at these, these men and women of faith is a powerful, powerful incentive to belief. You remember the four-minute mile? Uh for years and years, everyone thought that was the unbreakable barrier. Folklore has it that the Greeks used to train by having their runners uh, chased by lions. <laughs> the, uh, the hope was that they would learn to run faster. I think it would work. It would work for me. Uh, but no one attained uh, the four-minute mile until one man, one single solitary man, Roger Bannister, broke the four-minute mile barrier. And do you know what? The next year, 37 runners broke the four-minute mile, and the next year, 300 broke that impossible barrier. Now, you see, we have something more than better training methods and a little more stamina and a better diet today. We have God himself who does the impossible. So from time to time, we need to look back into the Old Testament and into the New Testament at these examples of faith that are given to us here and then look around us, that's his point, look around us at this great cloud of, of witnesses. Now, the second incentive that he describes for us is to look within. Verse 1 again, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Throw off the weights. I suppose he's talking about the training weights that uh, Greek runners wore back then as they do now and the sins that entangle us. I suppose uh, he's suggesting that we uh, tie our shoelaces so we don't uh, trip. The sin that he's describing here must be the sin of unbelief. It's definite and must refer back to the sin he's been describing all the way through the, through the, the book. It is so easy to not believe. 
Actually, it, it's very easy to believe. The problem is that we tend to believe the wrong things. We believe what our culture tells us about life rather than what God tells us. So easy to slip into that pattern of uh, hearing what the media has to say to us about our worth. Our worth comes from appearance, the way we look, the way we dress. Our worth comes to us from the cars that we drive. Uh, our worth comes comes to us by being macho and tough and independent and self-reliant. That's the way to develop self-esteem and to feel good about yourself. Or perhaps the most insidious of all, our worth comes from being good, from being righteous. That's a tough act because it, it becomes an act. You have to cover up, you see, because you don't want people to see that you're not good. See, our worth does not come from any of those elements or factors, our worth comes from God, from knowing how He looks at us, how He sees us, how much He loves us and cares for us. Uh, we've got to learn to believe the right things because it's so easy to believe the wrong things and thus to fall into unbelief. The weights or hindrances that he describes here can be almost anything. They can be sins, perhaps an obsession with uh, pornography or with fantasizing about sexual matters, or uh, it can be uh, oh, a preoccupation with uh, uh, daytime soaps, living in a fantasy world. We Christians are to be girded about with truth. There's no room in our lives for fantasy, but a lot of people log an awful lot of time just living in that other world, hiding in that other world. Uh, I would say the same thing about uh, Christian novels. Many of them are not Christian at all. We say, well, there's no sex and violence in them, but uh, they sometimes paint a totally unrealistic picture of life. I mean, at the end of your life, in comes this handsome young man on a white charger, and he rescues you from all of your problems, but that may not necessarily be so, you see. Life is not like that. No, we have to take that look inside and uh, ask God to put his finger on anything that's hindering us from believing and then continue to run the race with endurance. The third uh, element that he describes here, the third incentive to endurance is looking away to Jesus. He's described here as the author, that is, the first to go this way, the first pilgrim on the road, and the perfecter of faith, not our faith. He's not the one, he is the one who perfects our faith, but in this text he's not saying he is the, he is the perfecter of our faith. He's simply the perfecter of faith. That is, he's a perfect example of faith. You want to see how to, how to live the Christian life? Then just uh, look at Jesus. I've said before, I have to say it often, I think Jesus, when he was here during the days of his flesh, did not have an edge upon us. He never acted out of his deity. He said he did not. I do nothing, he said, of myself. I only do what I see the Father doing. In other words, he lived his life on the same basis on which we live our life, in total dependence upon the Father. He laid aside the independent use of his attributes as God and lived totally dependent upon God. And what was life like for him? Well, it was very, very hard. 
Oh, there were good days. There were days out fishing with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and there were those wonderful long walks by uh, by the, on the seashore. But uh, life was hard for him as well. Now, what the author says: Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the first and foremost, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He experienced vicious antagonism from ungodly men. Here is the the most righteous man who ever lived. He never did anything wrong. Theologians say he is impeccable. That is, he is without sin. And yet he endured the hostility of sinners against himself. Life was hard for him in other ways. He was single all of his life. He never married. He never knew the joy of having children. Uh, He was poor. He was poverty-stricken. He was rejected. He was often sad. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet he continued to do the will of the Father. I always do those things, he said, that please the Father. So uh, if you're feeling down and out and you want to give up, then just take a look at Jesus. As the author puts it so uh, pungently, he says, you're not dead yet. It may cost you your life. It cost Jesus his life. But uh, you have uh, not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He says, you're still alive. And while there's life, there's still hope. You're not dead yet. So stay with the task. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't quit. Don't fall out of ranks. Just keep on, as uh, Mr. Natural would say, keep on trucking. Keep on moving. Keep on trusting to the very end. Now, uh, there is a fourth element here which follows in verse 7. Endure hard... Well, excuse me, let me back up to verse 5. You've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And then he quotes... One of the Proverbs, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And uh, if you have an NIV, please scratch through the word punish. God does not punish us. That punishment was taken by our Lord Jesus on the cross. He will never, never punish us. But he does spank us. That's the word that he uses. The, the idea of discipline here is uh, not punishment, but it's child-rearing. It's upbringing. It's the kind of thing that we do for our children. It's a way of, uh, the way that fathers and mothers have of preparing their children for life. And, and the author wants us to understand that the hard things we're going through, the, the rigorous, uh, difficult days that we endure are all part of this, uh, this loving discipline of our Heavenly Father who's teaching us how to cope with life and preparing us to live life as we've always wanted to live. And sometimes he has to take the switch to us, take the rod to us. But it's all done for our good. He, he disciplines us for our good. wasn't always true of our fathers. Uh, it isn't always true of us. You know, sometimes we come home and we're tired and we want to be left alone. The kids get on our nerves and we yell at them. And sometimes we discipline out of anger and out of selfishness and out of self-love. 
uh, you know, we sort of bumble our way through, through parenting. All of us do. And that's unfortunate. Because I have come to believe that much of our concept of God does actually come from the way we were fathered. I've seen this over and over again. When people really begin to, to talk about their backgrounds and the, the kind of rearing they had, the way they were treated by their, by their fathers most often, very often there is a sense that my father did not love me enough. Now, of course, no father can ever love us enough because we were made for our heavenly father. There is an infinite, uh, this big, uh, deep, bottomless uh, capacity for love that we have that only God himself can fill up. If we had perfect fathers, we still wouldn't feel loved enough. But nevertheless, most of us, uh, looking back, would have to say, well, my, my father didn't really love me the way I would like to have been loved. It's even true for women, I, I discover. It's endemic in, in, the, in the race. I was sitting with a group of, of people, all of whom were, with the exception of myself, were high achievers, and uh, they were talking about their fathers, and every one of them felt driven because uh, their fathers had driven them and had such high expectations for them. I was reading one of Lynn Dayton's books, Mexico Set, last summer, and his uh, spy character, Bernard Sampson, says that at one point uh, in, in a conversation with another, uh, with another uh, character, do we never shed the tyranny of our Father's love? Oh, my goodness, that's, that's a universal. You know, it's just so difficult for us to get away from the tyrannizing effects of wanting our Father's love so desperately. And uh, no matter how, how good our fathers were at fathering, I think we all sense there was, a, there was a lack there somewhere along the line. By the way, that thing isn't working, is it? Well, that scared the daylights out of me. I looked up there and it was 10.30. But I'm in big trouble here. <clears throat> Uh, let's see, where was I? <laughs> totally lost my place here. I heard an interesting story a couple of weeks ago. A uh, young woman was talking about her relationship with her father. And uh, uh, she, in, in, in discussing it with a friend, this friend suggested that she sort of think back to, the, to what life with father was like. And she had a lot of repressed memories that she'd been stuffing for years. And one that popped into her mind uh, occurred when she was five, six years old. And her father was very aloof and, and distant and not at all affectionate. And she decided she was going to force some affection. And so she jumped into his lap. And uh, he couldn't handle it. He, he was embarrassed. And he had a beard, and he took his beard and he rubbed it on her cheek. And it hurt, scratched her. And she jumped off of his lap and she cried because she felt rejected. And uh, this woman, in thinking about that uh, experience, uh, remembered that every expression of affection on the part of her father had hurt. Uh, he pinched her or he pinched her ear or he hit her on top of the head when he saw her. And those were his ways of expressing affection. But uh, they hurt, all of them. And she realized that she had come to the conclusion that's the way God is. He loves us. Sure, he loves us. That's good theology. But he's always hurting us. 
And her friend suggested that she imagine herself crawling up into God's lap and having him put his arms around her and, and receiving his love. Now, that may not work for you. It doesn't particularly work for me, but for some people, that's very helpful. And uh, she, she did that. She imagined herself crawling into God's lap as a little child and receiving his love. And in her mind, she saw him put his arms around her and give her a big hug. There was no pain. He just loved her with all of his heart. Wanted the very best for her. And she said, just tremendous, freeing, cleansing to realize that God loved her like that. Now, you see, that's what, that's what the author wants us to know. The, the hard things that happen to us in life are not punishment. It's not God beating us up and taking out his wrath upon us. It's rather his rearing, his child rearing. It's our upbringing. It's what makes us more and more mature, more and more like our Lord Jesus, makes us more mellow, makes us easier to get along with, makes us more pure, more holy, more righteous, more like God Himself. Softens our face. Proverbs says, wisdom softens the face of a person. It's true. That once they begin to discover the love of God and they begin to settle down into that, that vast, bottomless love that's available to us. There's just something that happens to them. They begin to soften. And uh, the hard things in life don't make them bitter. Don't make them angry. They don't get resentful because they see that God is at work both to will and to do of His good pleasure, but also to produce in us what He calls the peaceable fruit of righteousness came across a poem years ago. I do not know the author, but it goes like this. Life is not as idle ore, but iron dug from central gloom, and heated hot with burning fears, and dipped in baths of hissing tears, and battered by the shocks of doom to shape and use. There's a story that we used to read to our kids. I've forgotten all about it till this last week. It's called The Velveteen Rabbit. Any of you read it? Wonderful little story. It's funny how these things come back to you. I love children's stories. I agree with uh, C.S. Lewis. He said when he became a man, he put away childish things, as well as the, which included the fear of being thought childish. And uh, I uh, think children's uh, stories sometimes are, are so much, uh, they seem to have a pathos, and they seem to penetrate in a way that that other other accounts do not. Uh, Let me just read a section from that story. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger, and by and by break their mainsprings and pass on. And he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced like the skin horse understand all about it. What is real? asked the velveteen rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fenders before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you're made. 
It's a thing that happens to you. When you're loved for a long, long time, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Often, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It does not happen all at once, said the skin horse. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and you look very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can never again be ugly except to people who don't understand. Now, uh, some of you, I'm sure, are feeling like you've been hugged and rubbed and and uh, the hair's worn off and uh, you're looking pretty shabby this morning. But remember, that's the love of God, His lovings. It's the rubbings of life that make us real, that make us authentically Christian, that make us more and more like our Lord Jesus. See, that's our desire. We want to share His beauty. We want to be like Him. Nothing else matters. That's when we once got that straight and we focused on becoming what He wants us to be, that we're authentic and nothing else matters. Now, he concludes in verse 12 with this uh, final word of encouragement. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. It's a long race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And we get tired. We get worn out. We want to drop out. Our joints ache and our calves hurt. We're out of wind. Sometimes we go on uh, wonderfully and other times as... uh, as Bunyan says of his pilgrims, sometimes we go on sighingly. You know, hard things. Sometimes we're going uphill and the race is hard. But uh, nevertheless, he says, keep going. Don't give up. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't stop believing in the world of unseen realities. Don't stop submitting to the will of God. Don't stop believing that what God has said is true. And stop looking on to the glory that lies yet ahead. Just keep on trucking. Keep going. Resist evil habits. Keep working on those difficult relationships. Keep striving to enter into God's rest. Keep reading the Word. Keep memorizing it. Keep blocking out time for worship in order to gain a sense of intimacy with God. And one day, we're going to finish the race and our Lord's going to take us home and we're going to get it all. Everything that we have coming to us. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather heal. In other words, uh, you just make things worse if you don't keep on going. I heard a story about Winston Churchill the other day. So many stories about Churchill are apocryphal. I don't know if this is true or not, but shortly after the Second World War, he was invited, in fact, it was after he was no longer Prime Minister of England. He was invited to speak to his public school graduation. And uh, he delivered an impromptu speech that consisted of ten words which epitomized the spirit of Winston Churchill. 
As he stood before those eager young men and women, he said to them, Never give up. Never give up. Never, never give up. And he sat down. Now that's what the author of, of Hebrews is saying to you. No matter how tough, no matter how hard, no matter how much opposition you're receiving, never give up. Never give up. Never, never give up. Let's pray. Will you stand with me, please? Father, you know the hearts of uh, your people that are gathered here this morning. Some are struggling with hard marriages. And uh, they're ready to quit. They want to give up. They've tried and tried to open lines of communication. They've tried to change themselves. They've tried to respond in obedience to your will. But things just seem to get worse. And there are people here that are struggling with their, with their children. Children that have turned their backs on you and have gone their own way and are reaping the consequences of their folly. There are people here who have lost their businesses and who struggle with bankruptcy and or impending bankruptcy. And there are people here that struggle with health problems. And there are some, Lord, who have it relatively easy. But we would pray in, in any case, whatever our circumstances are, whatever the condition of our environment, no matter what our heredity may be, that we will continue to walk with you. Help us to stay in the race. Help us to strengthen our weakened knees. Help us to get another grip on you to realize that you're running alongside. May we take strength from these great giants of faith who surround us. May we take that look inside and deal honestly and openly and forthrightly with the sin that impedes us. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, knowing that if the eye is single, the whole body will be full of light. And help us to see that the hard things in life are helping us to become what we've always wanted to be, more patient, more loving, more gentle, wiser, easier to entreat. Make this so for us, Lord, today we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.